This is Labor Wave Radio. Labor Radio is an independent podcast and it's sustained by our subscribers on Patreon. If you want to support the show, please do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts including stickers, zines, and original made Labor Wave t-shirts. If you can't support the show in monetary ways, you can still support us by subscribing to our content on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, following us on social media, and leaving us ratings and reviews, as that helps us reach new listeners. LaborWave Radio puts out bi-weekly new content on work and organizing from an anti-capitalist perspective. You can send us comments and questions about work and organizing, and we'll read it on the show and respond to any of your queries at laborwavenews at gmail.com. Eric Dernbach, welcome to LaborWave Radio. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this because as we were saying before we recorded, we're going to discuss union education and training and mentoring workers. And I just so happened to, one hour ago, finish completing my own open workshop on how to form a union with some workers. So I'm all geared up and ready to talk about exactly this subject. But before we get there, uh, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Like, who are you? What's your relationship to organized labor? So my name is Eric Dernbach. I live in New York City, and I have been a uh, union researcher, campaigner, organizer, organizing trainer, project coordinator, lots of different things for a few different unions for the last basically 20 years. And I kind of got my start in this world uh, when I was a grad student at University of Michigan, uh, where we had a union, uh, you know, since the 70s. And I got heavily involved. In fact, I remember the day that a colleague asked me if I wanted to be the steward for my department. And that was a conversation that literally changed my life. Uh, I got involved in the union for five years, steering committee, bargaining team, was the president of a local uh, during a year where we uh, went on strike. And bargained, uh, I think, the best contract in our union's history. We had about 1,500 members, graduate student instructors. And uh, I came out of that, you know, as I was finishing, I was getting a PhD in biophysics, if, uh, if, if, if anyone can believe that. Uh, but I decided I wanted to do labor movement stuff uh, forever because I really liked it. And I thought, well, why don't I apply my research skills to working for unions? And um, I just, I've always carried that experience with me of kind of you know, what I think of as really democratic militant unionism that we had, you know, admittedly among grad students, so it's a particular population. Um, but I think there's a lot of lessons from that, which I've always tried to remember over the years. And since then, worked for a few different unions, you know, again, as a researcher, organizer, and uh, campaigner, other stuff, while also keeping an eye on trends in the labor movement, labor data, what's going on with strikes and elections. I've also been a member of DSA past four or five years, and uh, IWW member for, I think, the past eight or so years. So I'm also interested in various modes of organizing, as I think you are. So I'm looking forward to the discussion. That's neat. I think we actually probably have a lot of similar life uh, pathways here because I, similarly, my first union membership was in a grad union. And then my first organizing gig was for staffing for a grad local. 
kind of that's where I cut my teeth too initially, at least on the paid side of things. In addition to what you're saying about your experience with unions, more recently, you have been volunteering your time and efforts towards sustaining and helping out with this new effort called EWOC, or the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee. And this is a joint partnership between United Electrical Workers, or UE, and the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. So what is this project? Like, what is EWOC? What are y'all trying to accomplish? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that partnership, kind of like a unique partnership, even came about in the first place. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, so we're really talking about March 2020, this partnership was formed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee between DSA and UE. And actually, I, I missed the first month or two. I joined like in April. And I heard through DSA labor circles that there was this project getting off the ground. And I had been thinking and talking with labor friends, you know, we are now going, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we're now going into a very kind of serious and kind of uncharted terrain where it became pretty clear that there was going to be obviously lots of workers who were able to go work from home, which includes me, very fortunate, um, but lots of workers that had to continue to show up for work as uh, what what were called essential workers. Uh, but it was pretty clear that they were also going to be expendable workers because what was being done around COVID safety or anything. So I had been thinking that, you know, unions really needed to step up their game, um, not only to deal with problems that their members were having, and there were plenty, um, but what about, what about the, the vast majority of workers who are non-union uh, that have so few protections at work? And so, um, you know, the project started, and I wasn't around for the, for the first month or so, but I got involved around April as an organizer, and the idea was that EWOC would be a resource where workers could contact, basically filling out a form on the website, saying, hey, I would like some help to discuss how to do some organizing at our workplace around COVID issues, and then, and then soon after around any issues. So that's kind of how it started. And it really seems like it took off pretty quickly, right? Like you, So you wrote a series of articles reflecting and documenting some of the successes as well as questions that emerged through your experience with EWOC. But according to you, I think individually, you've participated in something like 70 workshops, or at least you've trained about 70 to so workers within a year. Is that right? Well, I, 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 I wish it was with that many. I mean, I, I took 70 cases, but yeah, here's how it works. Like if a worker contacts EWOC, um, they get uh, an intake conversation with an intake organizer. And again, these are all you know, there's basically a thousand volunteers, I think mostly DSA members and other folks that have been involved in the project. And we have a few also paid staff coordinators to, <laughs> to help with this kind of monumental coordination effort. Um, but when somebody contacts EWOC, uh, an intake coordinator or organizer calls them and has an intake conversation about their issues and about their workplace. If they want to move forward at that point, then uh, it kind of goes into the database and uh, what we call advanced organizers, and I'm one of them, can take that case. Uh, or in some cases, it might be sent to us saying, we think this would be really good for you, et cetera. So then I would reach out to them. And so there were, at the time I wrote the article about a month ago, or a few weeks ago, I had um, taken 70 cases, seven zero, 70 cases. Now, uh, about half of them, I never was able to kind of get in touch with the worker because, you know, that happens sometimes. But with the other half, I was able to have a conversation. And so for some of those, not all, but for some of them did not want to go further. Um, they might have thought this was a different kind of project, or sometimes they, you know, had a specific question or they wanted to talk with a labor lawyer or they were about to quit or they just quit. You know, you're familiar with like all the scenarios that happen. Yeah. But with, you know, several dozen of those, they did want to move forward. And so what we would do, the, the typical methodology is 
we would set up a series of calls, um, phone or Zoom, to put together an organizing plan. Um, and we have kind of a standard EWOC methodology, which follows, uh, agrees with a lot of, you know, what you'll find in labor notes training, IWW training with AEIOU, McAlevey, likely the, likely the training that you're doing in your uh, union organizing training uh, as well, where we, we guide them through. And we have stuff on the website and there's videos. There's also, um, you know, training series where folks can participate over six weeks if the training is happening at the time that they're ready with, when, they, when, they're, when we're interacting with them. But basically, we guide them through the, the methodology of talking to coworkers, um, trying to form an organizing committee, charting and you know, mapping your workplace, who knows whom, who's a leader, who wants to be involved, assessing folks on deeply felt issues um, that folks want to take action on. And um, that action could be uh, you know, a number of different things, the kind of the, the paradigm action is for a majority of folks in the workplace to, uh, again, develop relationships and build the confidence that they will uh, get a majority to sign on to a petition for their boss over a number of issues and then deliver it with a march on the boss or even just, you know, it could even just be sending them, <laughs> sending them an email with the petition it could be a number of things and, you know, basically demanding these things. And that, that is the methodology. And in some cases it works. And, you know, but, but as you know, this is a, a huge challenge. Yeah. to do this kind of stuff. E- even something as maybe simple as what I just described is, is a tremendous challenge and also risky for folks to do this kind of organizing. Uh, but that's the idea, is to try to win some things that work and improve conditions that they're confronting during the pandemic and other things. And my understanding too is that though it is a partnership between DSA and UE, workers aren't obligated to try to affiliate with UE if they decide to go the union path. Is that correct? Like, how is it working out for DSA? What? I guess, like, is that correct? And then why does UE and DSA then put time and resources into this if they're not, like, obligating workers to, to organize with them? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think there might be the assumption that, well, you, and I think I had this assumption. It's like, oh, UE is going to get thousands of members out of this. I'm not sure if UE has gotten any members out of this, maybe a few. Um, there, there's, no, there's no obligation um, for any worker to join any union. Um, it's completely up to them. And we, we usually, if we reach that point in the conversation, we talk about options. Sometimes workers just want to fight for benefits or for immediate gains uh, on the job through you know, direct action uh, or other things. And then you know, I had one case where workers did that. They did a petition. They won some things around COVID. This was a bookstore, plexiglass barriers, customer limits, masks, things like that. But they wanted to formalize that and have a more formal union. Um, so we talked about options. They can have their own, in, you know, workers can always, as you know, and your listeners know, have their own independent union, um, or they can affiliate with an established union. Um, workers can, if they want an established, more an established union, they could demand voluntary recognition from their boss, which, which again, you have to fight for, um, or you can file for an NLRB election. And so I think workers are taking various routes, but probably by this point, the vast majority haven't done any of those things. They've just fought for improvements. And UE, in some cases, may have made a pitch um, to work with some of the workers in some of the shops, you know, where they could work with them, you know, where they have the staff in the right place at the right time, et cetera. So there may have been a few shops that have gone with UE, uh, but I think the vast majority at this point have gone with no union. They've just done uh, kind of direct action organizing or, you know, similar. This, this will sound very familiar to uh, IWW, knowledgeable folks, similar to solidarity unionism of the IWW where folks are just organizing and acting like a union. And in fact, they are a union, which is, again, something a lot of workers don't know. 
which is that any group of workers can form a union. It may not be official, may not be certified, you may not have a contract, but you're still a union. And why not? And so, so fight for things. And so that's what I usually tell people is like, let's start with just the organizing around issues. And later on, after you establish yourself, if you like what you're doing and you're having fun with it and you made some gains, uh, I think then we can talk about going a more formal route if that's what you want. It brings up a lot of questions, questions that you've also posed in your articles. But before like really digging into some of those juicy questions around like effectiveness and stuff, I always want to like kind of back up and like talk about the philosophy guiding this, you know, because I think what's really interesting, what resonates with me is that it seems like what I've judged from just online materials that Ewok is very willing to just throw everything that they have for anybody to see it, like open access to the materials. Workshops seem to be like low barriers to entry to get there. The philosophy seems to be like all workers are capable of organizing and deserve the ability to kind of gain these skills and acquire this knowledge. And there's not much of like a sense of proprietary ownership over it. You know, like a lot of unions tend to be very guarded about their methods and techniques, even though like personally, I don't think there's any new <laughs> methods or techniques under the sun. I think it's pretty well known by now. But this seems to be a completely opposite philosophy. And I just want to hear a little bit more about like what you think the philosophy guiding this work is. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever heard in any conversation the, the full hour-long lecture about the Ewok philosophy and here's how we do things. It's, it's kind of improvisational. Honestly, a lot of it, I think, is modeled on UE's United Electrical Workers philosophy of us and them unionism, which is a pamphlet they put out about a year ago. And as, as your listeners may know, UE, um, you know, is, is kind of one of the storied lefty unions, came out, came out of the CIO, was kicked out of the CIO, fell upon decades of hard times as it was raided and almost crushed out of existence, but, but still exists, has some tens of thousands of members. And I think among mainstream unions represents the kind of left pole of unionism, very kind of member run, very democratic, uh, you know, l- less bureaucracy than other places, perhaps. Um, and so I think that is that has informed the philosophy. But really, I mean, I, from what I can tell, and again, I'm not in the, kind of a lot of the central conversations. I really just wanted to do organizing. And from what I can tell, it was just like we need to get a program up and running that will be able to just provide assistance to as many workers as possible. So let's get stuff up on the website. I mean, we, we will not be as free and open about talking about campaign particulars where stuff is on the down low and still underground. So there's a few campaigns, you know, stuff that I'm working on now that I, I probably uh, couldn't really talk about too openly, you know, because <laughs> the bosses can find the Ewok website as they can find any. They can watch the videos, they can see the material. But again, you know, we're not putting secrets up there. This is pretty standard stuff that you can find on Labor Notes, IWW, other stuff. Uh, and just, we, we just wanted to make it available as, as widely as possible. So it does bring up the questions of uh, multiple questions around the effectiveness of the program, the future of the program, and some other things that you pose in your own articles. So I just kind of want to hear about that first, because like you said, 70 cases, about half of them you were able to get in contact with. What would you claim as successes so far for Ewok, at least in your experience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something I try to grapple with in an article. It's like, I, 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 don't, I do not want to be a, a kind of 100% cheerful propagandist for this project and say, hey, this is going great. I think a lot of campaigns, especially union campaigns, they, folks only want to talk about the positive, never want to talk about setbacks. But sometimes when there's a failed campaign, 
I'd love to hear about why it failed. You never hear about it. The memo is never distributed. There's never a press conference or a webinar, rarely, about how it failed. And that goes that's across the board. So I tried to grapple with it. But the numbers as of a few weeks ago were 2,700 workers contacted Ewok. And, you know, again, we go through intake conversations. Some of them don't want to move forward. Of those, my understanding is that 600 decided to move forward and launched a campaign. And when I say launched a campaign, I mean started to talk with coworkers, like engaged in some organizing activity. And then of all those, some, a lot of them are still ongoing or, you know, they're on hold, they're on again, off again. You know how this stuff goes. Of those at the time, 40, maybe I think it's closer to 50 campaigns have won something. And often that is, you know, sometimes it's very small things. It's, you know, at a store, it might be getting customer limits, enforcing masks. I'm thinking of one case um, where workstations that the workers had were spread further apart and not crowded close together. A lot of workers wanted to be able to continue to work from home. They didn't think they needed to go to work when they were able to work from home. As, as we know, bosses are all about power and surveillance. So they often want folks at work, even when it's not necessary. There have been fights about hazard pay, getting hazard pay, continuing hazard pay, and or essential worker pay, whatever, whatever we want to call it. And these conversations often raise other issues about pay and raises, about health and safety in general, about um, the health care plan, the benefits that folks have. Paid time off is a huge issue. If somebody gets COVID and has to quarantine for several weeks, are they paid for it? Generally, no. They should be. How is testing done? How are the wellness checks done? It raises issues about job description, equity, fairness, transparency, all the issues. All the issues have come up. And so, you know, workers will, will, will choose the kinds of things they want to fight over. And again, we, and we recommend, you know, we, we start with a small number of issues that, that are kind of widely and deeply felt. Also, it's nice if we can start with something that's kind of an easy win, build confidence, and then go from there. And yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't have, uh, I, I probably could look it up. I don't have kind of a detailed knowledge of every single, every single win and exactly what it was. But those are the, that's the collection of issues. It's often um, what might sound like very small things where workers, you know, form an organizing committee, do a majority petition, meet with their boss. It, it, sometimes it could be a kind of a hostile meeting, like barge in, <laughs> barge into the office and yell at them. Sometimes it could be, hey, we'd like to talk with you, and you present your demands. What I think is going on is that if you reach the point, you could tell me if you agree, I think a big bottleneck in this is forming the organizing committee. Oftentimes there's you know, one or two people that are, are concerned about what's going on and they want to do something, but it's a challenge to find anyone to work with them. You know, but what I say, you, you can't do this alone. It has to be a committee effort. You're more likely to win it. Otherwise, you know, you'll burn out if it's just you. If you could form an organizing committee and get a majority on a petition or something close to that, I bet chances are you're going to win something. And I'm actually interested because we're collecting the data on this. You know, I think it's interesting because EWOC is generating a large number of cases. And if we can collect all the data, um, we can find out. I would love to be able to tell people, if you form an organizing committee, you're 75% likely, <laughs> likely to win something. This is the data nerd part of me. But that kind of data is just like, it's so rarely presented out there. And again, we're not talking about NLRB elections. We're just talking about kind of direct action organizing. I, I would just love to be able to kind of reassure folks. Of course, this is risky stuff. Um, but if, if they can go through these several steps, um, you are likely to win some things and boost your confidence and then think about the next step. Well, that's a really interesting question that you pose because there's a couple of different ways I could take this. But one is that I think that that data would be really important. I tend to agree with you but I also lack the concrete numbers to prove it, right? But I usually insist like, 
when I talk to workers, your first step is to, well, there's other steps before that, but build the organizing committee first prior to trying to take direct action, because that is also my, my conviction that you have a higher likelihood of success. It seems intuitive, but the fact is, like you're saying, we don't actually track this stuff. And I, I do think that the IWW in particular with promoting solidarity unionism, things like Amazonians United that are emerging too, would really benefit from data and tracking like this as well to like demonstrate the proofs in the pudding. But I also think that it brings up the question, if I'm going to put on like a different hat and wear my mainstream union director hat, I would look at these numbers that you told me, and I would probably be convinced to say these are all failures. Like this isn't going far enough, right? Like you got no new members, you got no new contracts. Like how can I measure these concrete numbers in any way that can convince my union president to keep putting money towards this effort? So I just want to hear about your thoughts on that. Like, what do you think about measuring things in that way? Like, what do you think about that rubric for whether or not this is an effective program? Yeah, I mean, I think if your measure is how many dues paying members have we gained um, you know, then, then it's very few. I mean, it's only the, only the workers and, and the, 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 the groups of workers that decided to move in that direction. But what, and, and I totally understand that as somebody that's been with mainstream unions for a long time. And that is, that is, that is the mentality. Uh, but I think, and what I try to argue in the article, is it's going to make sense for unions to think more broadly about what membership means and what winning means. And let me take a step back. I mean, the way I frame it in the article is, you know, as, as your listeners are well aware, you know, we're at about 10% union density in this country and about 6%-ish in the private sector. That, it's an absolute crisis. These numbers, the 6% certainly, and the 10% haven't been seen in more than a century. And I think folks are well aware of the long decline since the post-war high of, you know, roughly one third of, of workers. And it's a long conversation about why that has happened, um, which, which your podcast has gotten into. Yeah, on, on, on many of your episodes. Yeah, that's all I talk about. <laughs> it's just, um, why are we failing? It's all we want to talk about. I mean, the, the entire time I've been in the labor movement, we've been failing, um, you know, over, uh, broadly speaking, um, in, a, in, a meta, in a meta sense. But, you know, surveys show, and again, the labor nerd part of me, you know, keeps an eye on a lot of the data. Surveys show that 50%, half the workers, non-union workers, want to be in a union. And so just looking at the numbers, there's like, you know, roughly 100 million private sector non-union workers, because it's a big country, and we're only at 6% density. So if half of them want a union, it's 50 million workers. So my challenge to the labor movement is, what answer do we have for the 50 million workers that want to be in a union when our NLRB elections that we're doing are organizing only tens of thousands of workers? Like, it's literally that small. We are running about 1,000 NLRB elections a year, winning two-thirds of them, which is a pretty good rate. Unions know how to win NLRB elections. Um, I think the problem is we're not running enough of them. We used to run many more. Back in the 70s, it was seven, 8,000 a year. Back in the 50s and 60s, I'm forgetting the number of elections per year, but according to the EPI reports that I read, Economic Policy Institute, they, they dug up the data. In the 50s and 60s, 1% or more of all private sector workers were participating in a union election every year. That, I mean, that is tremendous amount of organizing. And we are at like one-tenth of that now, much, much smaller. So <laughs> at the rate we're organizing, it will take, so I think I calculated that, it will take like a thousand years 
to reach all the non-union workers that want to be in a union, which is ridiculous. So, I mean, this is why people have kind of given up on NLRB workplace organizing, which I totally understand because it is a ridiculous system that is stacked against us, also very time consuming, staff intensive and expensive, which is why we do so little of it. So I think mainstream unions have basically no answer to how do we reach millions of workers soon who want a union. Um, I guess the answer is we need the PRO Act or something like it, which will, which will be helpful, um, but, but we don't have it and we're probably not going to get it because if you, we look at the labor history, we get things when we're disruptive enough, militant enough and disruptive enough so that the bosses want to give it to us. That is when we get things. And, and that's not where we're at. So, main, so, so here, here's where I want to I kick it back to you and all of our syndicalist friends. Because mm-hmm. what I'm talking about is that mainstream contractual unionism has its place, and I support it, um, but it has no answer for how do we reach 50 million workers. Whereas this other style of direct action solidarity unionism or syndicalism, it's another way of understanding it, has a very good answer for how to reach all these people, which is that all of you can start a union tomorrow in your shop. A few workers getting together can be a union and you start fighting for improvements. And so I think that is another mode of organizing that we absolutely have to embrace because there's just no other way of growing the labor movement and reaching all these workers. Then when those workers are organizing, they can decide if they want to switch over to regular unionism. You know, and then, and then we will have the standard victories that we're used to seeing, the election victories and the membership numbers, et cetera. But you know, a question I posed in the article is, unions could, if they really wanted to, open themselves up for kind of at-large membership where any worker that wants training and organizing assistance can come and get some help. And for the most part, the IWW, to its immense credit, is the only union that does that. Uh, other unions are basically closed, to my knowledge. There might be some, maybe at the local level. To my knowledge, unions are not open to working with any worker that calls them. I think that's a huge problem. I agree, 100%. I mean, this has been a position that I've been increasingly become convinced is my opinion on the matter, that I think all the things that you pose are absolutely on the money. The low union density, the unwillingness to participate in new forms of organizing and to embrace a more open model like you're talking about. All we're talking about is popular education, right? Like It's actually really simple. We just say, look, we have to imagine that there's ways of popularly educating the working class and that it'll have its own rewards and benefits. And the only unions that take that seriously are unions that are more invested in syndicalism or the IWW style of unionism, solidarity unionism. I've heard recently Stan Weir used to call it horizontal unionism, whatever you want to say. So I do think that the catalyst for actually changing these things is going to come outside the mainstream labor movement and come through forms of organizing like Amazonians United and the IWW. And I think that's what it's going to have to take, these popular education models. I think that is what the IWW does best, provides organizing trainings, refines it, reflects on it, catalogs, archives, all of the information, keeps foregrounding that as their primary activity. And I think that's what they should keep doing. But what I don't know is if that's sufficient And I think you raised these same questions too. How do you scale that up more? How do you build a structure around that that can continue to handle the immense leads that we get? Like the IWW gets a lot of leads too. And then like, what would the role for mainstream unions be in actually helping further these missions 
because it seems to me like though we might not want to admit it maybe there are moments when the mainstream unions we we do need to actually rely on them for some support and assistance so what do you think about that yeah no i mean you raise you raise i think all the right questions i mean we we absolutely need to see more more organizing and more different forms of organizing and experimentation and anything i mean there's been the rise of the worker center movement over the last 20 years which its its philosophy and its critique has been that mainstream unions are failing too many low wage and immigrant workers, um, you know, which is true. So work, worker centers also do organizing as well. The the data on how successful they are is less easily found. Um, I think what we can find is a lot of anecdotes and news articles. IWW obviously has been around over a hundred years, and its style of organizing uh, I fully support. But I think we and and you raise this. I think we have to think about how much of a challenge it is for syndicalist style direct action organizing to launch and get off the ground, but even more importantly, to sustain itself. I think we've, we've all seen a lot of campaigns, IWW and otherwise, where campaigns launch and then they kind of die off for one reason or another. And again, I'm only saying that this is hard. What we're doing is extremely hard to do, however we do it. And so you know, the mainstream style of union organizing exists you know, for a reason, it kind of like, it, it, it became what it is for a lot of historical reasons. Um, but some of its benefits are that it, it has a stability to it and a sustainability to it. You know, having workers in workplaces with exclusive representation and a contract, this is the standard model, means you have a sustainable dues-paying membership. You can hire staff that will do a lot of work. Um, the union has labor lawyers on its, in its employment. There is a structure there. It is often criticized by labor left radicals as the bureaucracy, and it is. I suppose I'm part of it. Um, but I think we have to recognize that there are benefits there if you want large, long-term, sustainable organizations. I mean, honestly, Alex, keeping a sizable union alive for decades is itself a tremendous achievement. Just keeping it alive, where we have to fight for everything. And no boss ever wants to give us anything. And organizing is hard. And people are getting fired. And we have to strike. And it's just like, and Republicans especially want to kill us. And Democrats are phony friends. And labor law never comes. Labor law reform never comes. I mean, this is the terrain we're on. So it, it's easy to criticize and fun to criticize the mainstream labor movement, often called business unionism. I usually just say mainstream for all its faults. And there are so many. But my challenge, my friendly challenge to syndicalists, and I'm half a syndicalist, is 90% plus of non-union, of non of workers are non-union. The field, I think you've said it yourself on your podcast, the field is wide open. Nothing is stopping all of these workers from organizing in any way that they want. And I would love to see direct action style, syndicalist style organizing grow and be successful and be sustainable. And I guess it's a major challenge. How can we make that happen? And this is where I literally have no answers. I'm just like recognizing what's been going on. I'm hoping you can tell me because it would be great if there were millions of workers in a syndicalist union federation. And I mean, that might exist worldwide, but not in the US. How can you build that? I don't have the answers clearly, but uh, I do think that if we're talking about just syndicalism or, you know, let's just say like the IWW. I can look at that and analyze it a little bit more directly because I've been involved for a while. I think some of the pitfalls 
that the IWW falls, finds itself in aren't really confined to their methodology. I think the OT 101 is still to this day, I think it's actually like the gold standard of like uh, trainings that exist in the United States, at least that I've encountered. I've done yeah. like all of them. I feel like the only one I haven't done yet is EWA. So maybe I should go through that and see if they pose a challenge, but great training, great materials, inexperienced organizers in a lot of branches, but they're trying, you know, they want to organize their workplaces. They're trying to gain practical experience. I don't really see that as like one of the limitations. I see more limitations in an internal divide over the mission and philosophy and like methods of the union that kind of is like a cycle, keeps resurfacing over and over that can like kind of stymie the like important organizing in the ground. But the other thing that I think might be actually a bigger hindrance is the IWW is willing to talk to like any worker, which they should, but like forever, which they should not. <laughs> Right. Like at some point, we got to be willing to cut loose some of these leads that are going nowhere. Uh, and at some point, we also got to stop looking at people's tattoos and, you know, their, their red and black flags hanging over their office window and say that those aren't necessarily all the good leads that we want. Right. And it sounds to me like Ewok actually is encountering similar challenges. Well, it's funny because like, you know, who, who reaches out to the IWW or Ewok or your, or your union training program, it's, you know, folks who obviously have issues at work and hopefully want to do something, oftentimes also they have leftist politics of some kind, socialist or anarchist or, or anything in the mix, and that's fine. But, and this is a dilemma, sometimes the folks that reach out to us may not end up being great organizers. I mean, we all have a caricature in our head of somebody that organizes the wrong way. You know, they will just like, you know, put out a lefty leaflet and start shouting slogans at their coworkers. It's a caricature. But organizing is, a, a, it's for, for it to be successful, has to be done in a particular, you know, I think in a particular way or particular ways. There's a bunch of ways to do it wrong. You know, we're always telling folks to look out for workplace leaders. What if the people we're working with are not themselves very good leaders? What if they actually don't want to do organizing? What if they have a hard time talking to coworkers? What if all they want to do is, you know, basically complain or kind of socialize with their coworkers. In other words, there's a lot of ways this can go wrong and we have to work with folks. Um, and look, I'm not saying that I'm a perfect mentor. I'm always learning. Uh, maybe there's ways that I can work with folks better too. I mean, organizing is a skill and you mentioned this. It's a skill that I think most folks can do. Maybe not everybody, um, but most, if you're willing to do it, willing to put in the work, it certainly helps to have experience and it helps to have read a lot and seen a lot. But I think our philosophy and yours too is this can be taught. We can teach folks this and you can get better at it. If you have a hard time talking to folks, we can role play. Uh, and then eventually you'll get good at it or better at it. There's the steps to take. Let's not do things like skip inoculation. Let's not get ahead of ourselves and like go on strike before we're ready. You know, there, is a, there are steps to this. There's a structure, which I think we can impart to folks. And we have hopefully good reasons why we have this structure. So absolutely, I believe that most workers can do this stuff. If they want to, you have to get over the fear that you might have. And even more importantly, the kind of hopelessness that things can change at work. I mean, I think that's, I think what keeps a lot of folks from wanting to take these steps. You know, so in a sense, like organizers also kind of end up being therapists and, you know, uh, <laughs> you know yeah. let's talk it through what happened today. You know how it is. It's just like, we have to, and this is hard, this is hard stuff. I mean, even for organizers, look, I'm not, I'm always learning from folks. I'm not the best. Uh, I don't know my boundaries at all. I mean, this is just, 
over and over. It's the same thing. And I can't seem to learn from it. Well, yeah. I mean, like, I know, and part of it is like, yes, it would be nice to have the data from lots of campaigns. Like, this is how we win. This is how we don't win. And maybe we can get that. Other than that, we have anecdotes and we have history. We have a, a kind of, his, you know, a, kind of a, a philosophy, a, a kind of like, you know, the IWW has 100 years of culture built around a certain kind of organizing, which, which, is, which is very solid. But I keep coming back to this idea, you know, organizing is hard no matter how we do it. And if we want more organizations like, you know, Amazonians United, and there's other things too that have popped up, you know, where it's what we would consider kind of, you know, grassroots, worker-led, minimal bureaucracy, probably no paid staff, direct action organizing based on workshop committees. If we want that, and we do, how do we build it and how do we sustain it? When there's worker turnover and worker burnout, I mean, just think about an Amazon warehouse. I mean, RWDSU has been criticized, I think, in some valid ways for the way they ran their election and lost amidst tremendous union busting. The worker turnover at that warehouse is like over 100% a year or something like that. So building a committee in and of itself is just a challenge when folks are just leaving all the time and you have to constantly be talking and training new workers coming in. It's one we have to grapple with. But I think it's like we have to recognize what a challenge that is. And the fact that we've seen so few examples of sustainable campaigns running for years and winning, I mean, unless there's a bunch that we don't know about because they're kind of not very public. Uh, I mean, this just says that this is very hard. So I think as a, as, a, as a group of labor left folks and others, we need to grapple with that and just try to figure that out. Well, and I think the other challenge that we were mentioning before, too, is like, who do we actually appeal to? Who do we attract? Who are we pulling in? Because, you know, I look at Ewok, and it's easy to immediately see that the organizations willing to participate in this are DSA, avowed socialist, right? Like publicly in their name, they're socialists, and UE. And if we are looking to the mainstream labor movement to pitch in in any way, so fill some voids to expand their organizing apparatus and their inclusion of popular education, I can't help but believe that it's just not possible. You got UE because they're a left-wing union. They're willing to do this. Who else is going to do it? You know, like they look at the numbers. They don't see any membership. They look at their own bureaucracy. Like they have to sustain themselves largely through dues checkoffs, things like that, you know? So these are like experiments that I think any director is going to look at as costly, risky, and going to get me fired because I can't show anything for it within a year or two, right? So like maybe are we at a dead end with this? Well, yeah, good question. I mean, the unions, the kind of the, the regular unions that are willing to, to think about a model like this, obviously UE and Communication Workers of America, CWA. To my knowledge, the, the, the two unions, aside from the IWW, I mentioned this in the article, they have campaigns that where they're organizing workers that may never get majority certification and a contract. Um, like one example is UE Local 150, which is a public sector worker, workers local in North Carolina. Public sector workers cannot have union recognition and a contract by state law unless they can change state law. But they're organizing. They're organizing to win things. And they have a bunch of thousands of members. Those folks that sign up and pay dues are UE members. Another example um, is the Communication Workers of America. They have the United Campus Workers campaign, which has a presence in like a dozen states. And they're organizing public sector education workers, like on college campuses, 
mostly in the South, where they don't have bargaining rights. So they're never going to get a contract. They're never going to get recognition until they change the law, if that's what they want to do. But the thousands of folks that have signed up are members of CWA. And so those unions are willing to take a chance on this model. And maybe there's folks in those unions that see this as a waste of time and this is never going to go anywhere. And there's probably, my guess is that there's a few champions in the unions that have convinced the rest of the union to keep this going. But again, these campaigns do have members that pay dues. Is it self-sustaining? Does it require an outside subsidy from the union? Maybe. Um, I think that's something all unions would probably have to do to run a project like this. In the article, I mentioned one way unions could, could run this without spending a tremendous amount of new money is to train their own members to volunteer to do this stuff. I mean, members are such an untapped resource. You know, we have 14 million union members and not enough of them are ever asked to do anything. It's a valid critique of, of mainstream unionism that so many members are checked out. And then there's millions of retirees. Can we train them to do these organizing calls and to be mentors and to help with organizing campaigns? I think absolutely yes. But that needs coordination and those folks need to be trained. And so that would be the job of the staff organizers at the union. And then the unions could open up their membership a bit so that like, you know, within maybe some parameters, any worker that's organizing, took a training, maintains a relationship with their mentor at the union, pays dues, could be considered a member and get assistance. Now, this is, this is a tricky thing organizationally because that means what? That a union might have thousands of like members in thousands of shops, one here and two there and three there. Whoa, what a, what a coordination challenge that is. What a mess which is how they're going to see it. And I get it. It is, it is, it is a tough thing to, to wrap our heads around. But again, I bring it back to the question, how do we reach millions of workers who want a union? We're not doing it now. And so we need, we need new models to do it. And I think as we saw back in the 30s, the labor movement grew when, you know, is, is, is a longer discussion, but when the CIO formed and posed a challenge to the AFL about the way of organizing and who we should organize, um, the labor movement as a whole grew tremendously. On the CIO side and on the AFL side, there was a little maybe healthy competition. Different models of organizing, I think, are going to be needed to reach more workers and to grow. And success convinces folks. If there is a syndicalist model that organizes a million workers, maybe it's hard to imagine now, regular unions are going to be looking at that and saying, hey, that's interesting. But I think we, you know, we haven't demonstrated that it's a workable model yet. But if we believe it's a workable model, then let's figure out how to do it. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of questions that come to mind. Uh, there is one thing I want to like tease out here and just hear your thoughts on. I don't pose this question as saying it's impossible. Like, I don't want to say that there's like complete dead ends here, but I do think about the questions you're posing, how you would talk about like our existing membership in mainstream unions really should be at the vanguard, dare I say it, of our organizing. And I agree with that fully. CWA is a union that I think would be actually willing to experiment with this. But I recall an article, this is like 20 years old, I think. So yesterday's papers, Steve Early wrote precisely about CWA's willingness to allow their members and some of their retirees to be their organizing arm of their union. And they created an external organizing committee, organized one of their family members' workshops. What ended up happening was they got into this jurisdictional battle with SCIU, who didn't do any of the organizing, came in, poached them, tried to undermine them. And like, I can't, like you said earlier, we can't always talk all the details about what happens in union circles, but I cannot tell you enough how many times I hear that story all the time. A union builds something, maybe they build something that's more rank and file led, and then some other union comes in and says, this is our jurisdiction, 
you have to stop and they just eat each other alive. And I would just think like, that seems to be such a big challenge that we haven't yet discussed and actually seeing this model kind of gain traction for mainstream unions. Yeah, I mean, the dysfunction that exists among unions and maybe even at the level of the AFL-CIO is, is certainly there. That kind of story is very discouraging, you know, and we see things like that over the years. I mean, one thing we can say is that, like, let's say that there is a successful syndicalist union that, that builds up a presence in a large company with thousands of members. If they're doing their organizing correctly and, and the way it should be done, it should not be possible for a mainstream union to barge in and say, hey, we want this because, you know, the members, you know, the workers will not want that. They will want to stick with what they've built. And so, but yes, I mean, those kinds of things where jurisdictional disputes might happen or a union might think this should be ours uh, or raids might happen. I mean, UE <laughs> dealt with raids, you know, for all the entire 1950s, lost most of its members. It's a very particular time and place, uh, history there. So I hear what you're saying. I guess you know, if alternative forms of organizing are successful enough, it will attract other unions into that space, including potentially some bad actors that might just want to take it or ruin it. But I'd like to think the best <laughs> of most unions and most folks in unions. So I'd like to think the best. And <laughs> again, if the organizing is done well enough, it should not be possible to come in and take it because the workers themselves will be like, we have built the thing that we want. So, so go away. But I hear, I hear what you're saying. Uh, th- those things have happened. That's fair. Now. When it comes down to talking about syndicalism, horizontal unionism, whatever we want to call it, it does seem that one of the things maybe we haven't figured out that well yet is when we do have successes, how we take that worksite structure and scale that up, right? Turn that into the operations of the union itself. Like these worksites that win, they build a structure. How can we like expand that structure and scale it? And it sounds to me like Ewok is also having similar conversations and is maybe having similar challenges figuring out scale. So what, what has been the experience there? Well, yeah, I mean, what ended up happening, maybe no surprise, is over the course of the year, workers, say, from a, you know, large retail companies, you know, dozens, would contact Ewok not knowing each other, just different locations. So we get into conversations with them, and that has led to ideas, and we're, we didn't make this up, you know, can we have... Uh, organizing committees at multiple locations and form kind of a sustainable worker network at the large company? I think the answer is yes. (laughs) Easier said than done. So there are some examples, which I can't talk about in detail, of um, retail chains where there are, you know, we we, we may be in contact with dozens of stores and trying to help them build organizing committees that then communicate with each other. And this is a whole different level of complexity because, you know, each store is its own fight might have its own issues, but then there might be national issues, things that have to be decided at the corporate level. If, if we want, um, you know, if a retail store workers, you know, wants reinstatement of hazard pay that they had and then was disappeared, that may not be decidable at the store level or the regional level. Maybe that's a corporate-wide decision. Uh, and, and that folks at the individual store may not be able to win that. It's an open question. So that we would want dozens of store OCs to be putting pressure on the company. That has to be built. It has to be maintained. I imagine Amazonian Workers United, you know, how many warehouses does Amazon have? They hopefully have presence in dozens of them because that's what you're going to need. Uh, talk about conflict. Maybe they'll come into conflict with the Teamsters, which has decided that they want to organize uh, the company, which I think is fine. As we, it's probably a labor movement wide effort. But these kind of worker networks have to be formed. And all I can say is that 
my God, what a challenge it is to form them and to keep it going. So I think, I think Ewok sees its role as helping the formation of these networks. And then at some point we say, good luck. I mean, you're on your own. You have a sustainable worker network. You can decide if you want to pay dues. You can decide if you want to hire a coordinator. You can decide if you want to affiliate with a union. Uh, have unions come in and make their pitch. UE could be one of them. Maybe there's others. Uh, I'm not going to decide for them. We can talk through options. Or you could be your own union, you know, which, which again, is, is, is an option, but, but a challenging one. It is often helpful to be part of a larger union. You could be an IWW local and you know, have worker solidarity from the rest of the IWW. The options are there. I think it's just, you know, most workers don't know what these options are. It's, they just don't know because who, who teaches them and how do you find stuff out? So I think it's just, it's laying out the possibilities. I'm sure in your own discussions, when you've talked through organizing and some folks might want to know, like, where is this going? And you're talking about endpoints. Well, maybe there's no endpoint. The fight, the fight continues forever, right? Yeah, that's actually usually what I say is like, the organizing doesn't stop. Uh, if you're in like a mainstream framework, when you win your recognition, well, get ready for that contract campaign. And then once you win a contract, get ready for the next. Like it never stops. And I don't know if that's discouraging or disheartening for workers that maybe have little experience with this, but that's kind of where I'm at too. Like all these are open-ended questions, but you know, it is clear to me and I'm in this mode of thinking too, that there is something that excites me about this framework, this model of like popular education, just providing the opportunities for workers to learn. And you're clearly invested in it still too. You're not like quitting the project, uh, you're disposing challenges. So I want to know, like, what are the things that are keeping you connected to it? What are the things that are keeping you inspired and motivated to continue? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the conversation with workers, I think, are, are, in, are often inspiring and or educational. I'm always learning some things. I love to see when uh, an organizing committee forms and adds new members. I love to see, you know, when they put together a worker list. I love to see when they start doing their rankings. And they've identified leaders and they're having demands if they take an action. And then eventually, in this one case of the bookstore, they won an election. I mean, look, the la- labor is labor. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a one-dimensional nerd. Labor is all I do. Like, it's all I want to do. Like, I do this in my spare time. I want to see wins. Folks that I have worked with, I don't want to be kind of grandiose about it, but I think some of them, their, their eyes have been open to the organizing framework. And they, they're now thinking like an organizer, which means wherever they go, they're going to be thinking about organizing. It's, it's what happened to me back in grad school when I knew what unions were. I come from a union family, but I wasn't thinking like an organizer. And so once you start and once you see the world that way, it's, it's the way it's seeing it through the lens of class struggle, seeing it through building power in the workplace and how to do that and how to sustain it. I, I kind of think it's life changing. And so I think there's, there's been some folks that have been through these campaigns that have gone on and are volunteering with EWOC and, um, have, have talked about organizing in future places. I, I like to think that they will carry this philosophy with them. So, I mean, if, if your program and EWOC and IWW and others can train over time millions of workers in how to think this way, they will go on and organize. And we might have wins later on that we don't even know about, but we'll take some credit for it, right? also want to say that this is an arena for experimentation. I listened to uh, a recent podcast episode that you ran with Hamilton Nolan about no-strike clauses. I, I think... Uh, it's it's a, a, an extremely interesting idea to have a lot of unions bargaining units with a contract with no no strike clause. It is probably impossible to convince most existing unions with contracts to do that. They'd have to take out their no strike clause. But newly organized unions with contracts 
might decide to go that route. And then, you know, you and I can start to collect some data. How do they do? How's the struggle? How often do they strike during the contract? Do they win more? Do they win less? The reason why we have no strike clauses, which also includes no lockout clauses, let's be fair about it. The reason why they exist is that we think it's a reasonable trade, you know, and we perhaps can get some more things from the boss. Uh, but, you know, let's, let's, you know, we're 70 years into that model since the 50s. Let's test it. So new forms of organizing will be the ones to test it more than old, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and I, I think in that conversation, that was where I landed on it too, was that I posed it to Hamilton Nolan that this is going to be new unions that do this, not the existing AFL-CIO. And he respectfully disagreed, thought that there's prospects within the AFL-CIO. I don't have the answers and I'm not going to say 100% that I do. But I will say that similar to your experience, my experience in labor organizing has been such that I'm convinced that popular education does need to be our primary activity. Uh, and that's from my own practical experience. First organizing training I ever went to was an IWW OT 101 when I was waiting tables, doing line cook work and bartending. I did like all of them at the same time. It was like collapsed into one job. And that taught me a lot. And from there, my grad union taught me things. And then from my first organizing gig as a staff person, I worked for a grad union. And what we started doing was just putting on constant trainings and workshops. It wasn't just like mapping and charting and things like that and have a, how to have conversations, which those were the primary things. It was also like union education. Like what's the history of labor unions? What are the politics behind it? Like where did it even come from? Things like that. Talking about political issues and debates and putting on trainings and panels for it. Bringing in guest speakers. And after a while, you just start, you didn't, you couldn't measure the success immediately or even for like the first year. But after a while, you started building all of this enthusiasm and participation in the union. We we're able to build a large bargaining committee, go really big with our demands, have minimal successes, some victories, some not so much. But at the end of the day, if we didn't do like a hundred workshops over the course of two years, we would have never even gotten to what we got to. So I am convinced that this is the way. I just think we're maybe not quite prepared for the immense amount of labor that it actually is going to take to even succeed in popular education programs. It's a tremendous amount. I mean, yeah, absolutely. What you said is right. I mean, to do, I mean, if we just wanted to roll out union organizing trainings for, for what would it take to train a million workers and how to do this? Like we, we would need thousands of trainers like working pretty hard over a year or two or three. So, you know, that's the, that's the infrastructure we would need to build. And, and I think we could build it. Like those people are out there, union members, retirees, uh, labor activists, le lefties. And that's what I tried to, you know, like I don't, I don't want to say Ewok, Ewok is everything and it's 100% successful and nothing can be changed. But I think it provides a, a sense that that kind of network, and again, this is, you know, largely similar to the network that the IWW has built where you have, you know, I don't know how many, but, but certainly a lot of uh, labor activists in their shops and as IWW members that are doing training, et cetera, where you can have a network of folks doing these trainings and reaching more folks. And I think, you know, what, what makes this a little heartbreaking is that a lot of folks we interact with decide they don't want to do it or they can't find anyone to work with and they disappear on us. And that's too bad. Um, but there's so many folks that I think want to continue. And so th that, that, that's what makes it worthwhile. And I'm sure you've seen that in your trainings as well. 
where you have a few people that kind of really get it. And then you might have a few people that are like, I don't, I, I don't want to do this or I don't understand this. No, I mean, I think that's right. It's just, let's do the training. And even, even just training a lot of union members themselves. Like one of the things I've done over the years is teach labor history and, you know, ways of thinking about unions that are, that are better and different than thinking of the union as a service provider to you in exchange for dues, which is a toxic ideology that I feel like a lot of members have been trained uh, to think about. It's not their fault. The union trained them to think that way. The service, the dreaded service model. We need to be thinking about the organizing model or the social movement model or the militant model, however you want to call it, where the union is just the workers. It's just the members. It's not the staff that provides services. I mean, we're going to fail if that's what we're trying to do. Staff can't do it all. We just, you know, that's, that's why we're not doing enough organizing. Like, I think we, have, we need to involve the members. Well, with that, I think that's a perfect ending to this conversation because honestly, I think we could keep talking forever. But I want to allow our listeners the opportunity to know how to plug in with you, maybe plug in with Ewok. So what are ways people can connect with you and the work of Ewok? Yeah, well, you can just Google uh, Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. It's either Organized Workers or Worker Organizing. I think the website is one, the Twitter is the other. Anyway, Google Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. You'll see all about it. There's a form that you can fill out if you want to contact, or you can look at the training materials, et cetera. Again, work in progress. Not, not everything's perfect about it. If you want to reach me, well, you know, you, you can email me. Uh, I'm at Twitter at Eric Dernbach, E-R-I-C-D-I-R-N-B-A-C-H, uh, or edernbach at gmail.com. Happy to talk. Folks are all, you know, often reaching out to me, want to talk about, uh, you know, what's it like to work in the labor movement or what's it like to start organizing? You know, I'm happy to, I'm, I'm like in the phase of my career, maybe where I'm, I'm doing more mentoring and that's fine. Uh, hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully helpful conversation. So ha- happy to talk. And, and this has been a lot of fun, Alex. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for you again, Eric Dunbach. has been our guest. Thanks for coming on Labor Wave Radio. And we'll have to have you again sometime. Thank you. Yes. Hey, Labor Wave listeners. Wanted to end this segment by advertising again some opportunities to learn labor organizing from experienced unionists. And that includes Ewok that you heard about in this episode. In addition to that, there's also the very popular Labor Notes. They give regular workshops and trainings, and they even do a regular conference called the Troublemakers Conference in Chicago. There's also the IWW's OT101s and OT102s. As I expressed in this episode, those trainings, I feel, are the gold standard in labor organizing. They are a commitment when they are offered in person. They are typically two days and eight to 12 hours each day. But again, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a more thorough and thoughtful education program offered by any unions. The other one that exists but primarily for internal organizing for workers that are members of existing unions is the AFL-CIO's OI, Organizing Institute. And so there could be opportunities, maybe if you know folks in the labor scene that you get plugged into that. However, to my knowledge, they don't typically do how to form new unions. And then finally, some self-promotion here. There is a new initiative that's been launched in Philadelphia called the Institute for Organizing Unions. And I am one of the staff people that is involved in developing the materials and delivering the trainings. You can find out more information about that at organizinginstitute.net. The IOU trainings are no cost to the attendees. And the way they've been running so far is they're two days, three hours each day, either in person or online. So if you just keep up with it on social media, you'll see when the next opportunity to take an open workshop will be. 
but you could also register along with at least two of your coworkers or two friends that you know that are also interested in forming a union. And based on your registration availability, we'll schedule a training around those timelines. Segwaying here, I wanted to start doing something to end these episodes where we just talk about labor campaigns on the ground and what to expect. So if you have questions or anything that you want to share from your own personal stories about organizing campaigns you've been a part of, send them our way at laborwavenews at gmail.com read it on the show and discuss either solo or with the guest. But today I wanted to talk about a recent article in the Philadelphia Inquirer about workers at Starbucks that were fired roughly a year ago for their concerted activity. That's the NLRB term for organizing activities. Now these workers were fired and the NLRB has currently ruled that that was retaliatory. They're pending appeals from the company. And that's realistically a very long, drawn-out process. Labor law is the tool of the bosses. It's never on our side. Do not rely on it as a strategy. That's my opinion on it, but I think this show has well-documented the reasons why. One thing that the article says that I personally want to discourage as advice for any workers building a union or doing any organizing is it states very clearly that you should go public with your organizing has a big bullet, just says go public, and then describes how the workers were able to prove that they were retaliated against for organizing activities because they were so vocal in public. Now, look, there's a lot of competing opinions about this and arguments about whether or not you should go public early in a campaign and why. Usually, even like mainstream unions do insist, like, be very underground until you have the capacity, until you have the numbers to win. But in reflecting on this article, as one of my friends put it, He said, the advice here is effectively go public so that you get fired. So I would discourage this as being seen as a viable strategy. The strategy really is to keep the boss neutral for as long as possible. And the most effective way to keep bosses neutralized is for them to be completely ignorant of the organizing happening on the ground. The longer you stay underground and are able to have confidential, in-person, one-on-one conversations with your coworkers so that you can build an organizing committee that is robust and representative of the entire workforce, the more likely you are to succeed in the long run because you will have the numbers to back up any direct actions that you take, any rallies, any, and particularly if you're trying to go on a strike, you need mass numbers to be effective. And by that time, you will have enough capacity to take direct action in the workplace and overcome retaliation. And there's also even a debate about what it means specifically to go public. If going public means announcing yourself to the community surrounding you so that you can shore up you know, public sympathies and potentially put the company on blast for bad behavior, I would challenge folks to show the evidence that this has any real impact on winning unions. Like, what does it actually do for workers materially? Has any workplace gotten recognition simply by public sympathy? Or has it been more a matter of workers on the inside with their proximity to production and their pressure that they can apply on the production process and the revenue process for the company? Is it not them that actually has the most pressure to compel an employer 
towards making concessions to worker demands. I think it depends on the industry in some cases. It's not like there's never a scenario where public sympathy can be helpful. I think in particular, if you already are a union with the contract, having some level of like public support and putting your company on blast might help you get to a settlement sooner. But again, I think the burden of proof is on those that propose this as a viable strategy. And I'd be very happy to receive any evidence and documentation and data that proves me wrong on this matter. So again, my recommendation is do not take the advice of the Philadelphia Inquirer and go public as soon as you start organizing, but rather build your organizing committee first, have the numbers so that when you're ready to take action, you have the capacity to win and overcome retaliation. Also, expect retaliation will happen in any given scenario. Just because the law might help you win a court case down the road, proving that you were retaliated against, what are you supposed to do in those one to two years as a worker where you've been fired and without work? This is not a viable strategy if the goal is actually to build a union. Again, would love to hear your stories from the campaigns if you have questions, if you're seeking any advice, or if you just want to hear thoughts about the labor movement in general, send those questions, send your comments to laborwavenews at gmail.com.